That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome into the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I am Sarah Spain. Excited for you to hear my conversation with Ben Lyons. This is a guy who uh, years ago I ran into in a studio in New York, and I remember uh, recognizing him from his work in movies and, and television entertainment stuff. And he's since become a part of the ESPN family and does a whole bunch of stuff in the entertainment world, sports and uh, TV and movies. Love chatting with him. And uh, he's got an interesting perspective on things because he does bring that that uh, that obsessive New York fandom that blinds him from the truth. He's like such a Carmelo Anthony Homer. But at the same time, I think he's he's, he's starting to learn a little bit from his time in L.A. how to be a little bit more uh, objective about his Knicks and his teams. Um, but great stories from behind the scenes at award shows when he's covering some of that stuff. And, and great stories uh, from his, his life and his, uh, his his interesting travels around around the country covering different stuff. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. This is my chat with uh, Ben Lyons. Well, that's what she said. Happy to welcome in Ben Lyons. He's got many titles. Works for ESPN Radio in L.A., producer and correspondent at the Players' Tribune, host of the warm-up on NBA TV, works with Franchise Magazine, and, of course, you can see him at Oscars.com, the official live stream of the Oscars, talking movies, talking to stars, and that's where you began. I don't know if you've listened to That's What She Said much, but I like to do the life story, how people became the person that they are. Origin story. Yes, origin. I want to start even before you were movie guy to being a kid. You are the son of a well-known entertainment reporter, the grandson of a famous newspaper columnist, and that turned you into what kind of child? Wow. Uh, thank you so much for having me. First of all, a huge of fan of you and all the stuff you do oh, here at ESPN. Me up. No, I mean it, Sarah. You are <laughs> I'm an, still bringing you are the tough stuff. No, an amazing voice in this complicated <laughs> sports media landscape. So, uh, yeah, huge fan of your stuff. So thanks thank for having you. me on. I was a really curious kid. I loved asking questions. I loved not sitting at the kids' table. I loved sitting with my parents who, to their credit, had friends from all walks of life and all parts of the globe. Uh, my mom was a flight attendant for many years. So she had her crew of, of flight attendants who would travel all over and talk about their experiences. So I was a very curious child, which kind of kind of leads you into a life of asking questions for a living. It mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, and coming from reporters, columnists, people who are used to being curious about things, I'm I'm picturing a sort of Richie Rich house with like a screening ah. room huh. and like uh and like you a, haven't looked at the real estate in Manhattan, yeah, and like recently. oh Manhattan. Okay, so I'm picturing a uh a, a Small but luxe apartment. Uh, was there a room that was just a desk with many, you know, leather bound books where your father would do his work? Lo- many leather bound books. My father has been on television for 40 years and has recorded himself every time he's been on and has all of his father's 12,000 columns from the New York Post saved, plus all of my work cataloged on wow. all the various different things. So, I don't even want to say he's like an archivist more than a hoarder, but it, the, the right. line is or blurred. Or a narcissist. Yeah, a, a little a ton bit. Of, no, it's no, like Kobe I mean, watching game film right. on the flight. Yeah. Every single appearance. That's remarkable. Amazing. Um, and so, yeah, my apartment, I grew, grew up in the middle of Manhattan. I grew. I shared a room with my sister who's six years younger. So in the 90s, half the room was wow. Backstreet Boys and Hanson and Christina Aguilera. And the other half was Deion Sanders. I had a ghost face <laughs> Iron Man poster on my wall. And, uh, yeah, we got, you know, really close, obviously, living yeah, together. Yeah, to what age? Um, until I moved down. I went to Michigan at 18. Really? And she was 12. 
And then I came home that summer and she painted the whole room pink and just took it over. And I was like, I got to get out of here. That's so. a remarkably long time to share a room when you're going through puberty and sure. yeah, you like girls. And you're trying and to be a DJ and make mixtapes and have rappers we over at your house. Okay, so managing. tell me about that. And so my, my first kind of entree into professionalism, if you will, was trying to be Russell Simmons. I wanted to manage rappers and release music and had a roster of artists and would uh, produce music videos for people like Tony Touch and Black Moon no and Smith & Wesson and... Um, yeah, I was running around New York in the late 90s, early 2000s with dreams of having a music empire and somehow that ended up being able to talk about the NBA for a living. So. Right. Well, we'll get we'll get to the transition. So you are how old when you first decide you want to start managing? Well, I was seven. I was 18 years old when I got a job in the mailroom at William Morris. I was a senior in high school and then I would spend the mornings, though, um, at William Morris till about one o'clock answering phones, running faxes at the time and all those things, and then go to school in the afternoon, you know, as college was on the horizon and, and working towards Michigan. But yeah, so I started in the mailroom, which is a, a great crash course for anybody interested in being in the entertainment business. Right. So many people they want to go to Hollywood. I'm an actor slash this slash that. Start in the mailroom, even if you don't want to be Ari Gold, even if you don't right. want to be a talent agent or Nick Khan or Ryan Hayden or any of these big guys. Go learn the business, learn the language, learn how deals are done. And those were really, really interesting years in interning at William Morris. So I did that in high school and then started managing rappers then as well and was During just, that senior year? Yeah. I put and on, how did you meet them and why were you so why you do you think this. you were so into the hip hop scene? Hip-hop, well, being from a well to do family in midtown Manhattan, going to the oldest private school in America, right, why was right. I into hip hop? Um, because it was the soundtrack to my childhood. I grew up in New York in the nineties, which gave us Nas's first album and Biggie's first album, Wu Tang albums, and it was a real golden era in the genre's history and it was I was at the center of it. And when you're sixteen, seventeen years old, all you want to do is touch the culture. All you want to do is wait right. on outside of coconuts to meet the firm and oh my God, I got Eric Sermon to sign my twelve inch like record. Like I was really obsessive and into it. Um, and I think there's something too, when you're not from the culture necessarily, you want to learn as much about the culture and dive sure. headfirst into it. Right. So obviously as an outsider looking into hip hop culture, I was enamored with all of it. Right. Um, and I had a uh, senior project at my school collegiate. They realized once kids got accepted into college, they kind of checked out. So they gave us pro uh, projects that we could pitch to keep us engaged throughout hmm. the year that would hopefully lead us in the direction towards our careers. I have a friend who ended up becoming a restaurateur. His senior project was a food festival that he curated. I have another friend who became a very successful dentist in Dallas. He interned at a dentist's office, his senior project. I put on, at the oldest high school in America, a hip-hop appreciation day. This is actually the oldest high school in America. Yes, Collegiate was founded Factually. in 1628, about 150 years before America. Oh, very stuffy. So okay. so we got a hip-hop concert. Yes, and my cousin Ricky from Westchester grew up with a guy named Drew Ha, who runs an independent record label called Duck Down Records. I knew who Buckshot was, Smith & Wesson, OGC, Helta Skelta. All these names mean nothing to you, but no. to me, they were my superheroes. And I call my cousin Ricky, ask him to set me up with Drew. And these guys, to their credit, came to my school and performed and spoke to the kids. Did you pay them? No, I didn't. I was, and that was something that I learned from that whole experience is that you can offer your enthusiasm. You can offer an audience. You can offer so much more than just writing a check and getting right. someone to do something. I had Elliot Wilson, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of XXL Magazine. He came and spoke. I had break dancers, graffiti. I That's just awesome. dove right into it. 
got an internship with Duckdown, the record label that came. And that's how I kind of began my career in media producing and just being around, you know, people in the arts and, and that whole world. Were there teachers and or students at the school at that concert that were remarkably awkward and or not at all interested? Doctor- or were there ones that you were like, you didn't know your teacher was a hip hop totally. head and all of a sudden they're, you know, all the words. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Clark, who is, you know, an expert in all things American history and has been teaching at Collegiate for 40 odd years. Oh, it's second steel. Nice to meet you guys. <laughs> right. oh. But my my advisor, Mr. Smith, who was a student at the school from the culture. He's a big hip hop fan. He knew my intentions were, you know, what they were and, and was real supportive of me awesome. doing that. And we stay very close to this day. We, yeah. yeah, it's really cool as you get older and your teachers from high school start to see you as a peer. And as, an as a real human being. And then you can almost and then you really realize connect that they're with human them. beings as well. Right, and you're like, oh yeah. my God, I wish I knew this when you were teaching me Dante in yeah, eighth grade. Exactly. That you were a real dude. So yeah. So you get to, to Michigan mm-hmm. and you are what are you studying there? I was an English major at Michigan. I learned that if you could read or write, you could probably do whatever. Right. So. Agreed. That's what I was. So. All right. Sorry. You're an English major. And are you interning in the summers for Duckdown? Um, so I, uh, my freshman year, I w- went to Michigan and I came home and I actually got a job at Def Jam Records. Mm. I worked uh, my dad's hairdresser at NBC was Angie Lorenzo. Okay. Her brother was a guy named Irv Gotti. Irv Gotti discovered DMX, Ja Rule. He ran Murder, Inc. at Def Jam. So I got an internship through that somehow. This is like 2000, 2001. So Ja Rule and J-Lo, it's like the biggest record yeah. of the summer. Yeah. I drove through Harlem in a giant Ja Rule-wrapped van <laughs> handing out J-Lo CDs. I used to run trees for, I don't even want to say how many different rappers that I would have to go right. downstairs and deliver a manila envelope to a guy named Uwap who would drive it to who knows where. <laughs> so I was just in this world. I was at Def Jam and, 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 and Rockefeller, like right when that whole movement was really happening so that was my summers was i'd go and then i'd be the college rep at michigan right handing out the new music yeah and when you actually co- did that for aware records which is very different it was like train uh, and five for fighting yeah, and john break. mayer huh? but yeah. i was i was still trying my best yeah, repping the new music um okay so you then uh how long you, you you left Michigan early? I did two years at the University of Michigan. I was on the co- the radio station there sometimes late at night playing hip hop and talking. And I wanted to just get going with my career. And while Michigan's an amazing university, it's isolated from the world I grew up in. And it's small from the world I grew up in. I grew up in New York City right. in the private school system in New York. So you're a phone call away from anybody. And right. you can really hustle and find your way. And I was kind of done with the rat stuff and the drinking and the right. after you kind of done it so all. I so I wonder like, so there's this, I think children of very successful and well-to-do parents are often either they do nothing. They're not motivated. They don't feel any impetus to find their own life and their own work because of that or the opposite where they grow up really fast, partly because they're um, exposed to all this stuff. And then in New York, doubly so because, you know, kids who grew up in New York are like, 35 by the time they're 12 they've got like a cell phone and they've got an agent and they call the driver and whatever else so was there a part of you that um was motivated by a desire to be as successful as your father and grandfather or was it just that because of the influences around you it felt like maybe earlier in your life that you needed to know exactly what you wanted to do and start doing it so i'm so great you recognize the difference in those types of 
people because there's a there's a great George Clooney line from The Descendants, uh, a film I love with Shailene Woodley from a few years back where he says, you know, my parents gave me enough money to do something, but not enough money to do nothing. Yeah. And yeah. my mom always says it wasn't about your dad picking up the phone and getting you a job, but it was more you were comfortable in that world. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Sarah, sometimes when the bright lights come on or you meet talent, you know, big time people, people get nervous or they clam up or they're not themselves. I was going to interviews with my dad since I was a kid. I remember James Earl Jones would come to the house or John Voight would run downstairs. You send him a package or whatever. And yeah, I remember being 12 years old and seeing Saving Private Ryan. My dad played in a softball game the next day with Ed Burns. <laughs> and I sat in the dugout and just picked his brain for right. two hours. How'd you get this shot? Right. Was that a long day on set? Who's this young actor, Matt Damon? Like, right. And I loved that experience of seeing a film, talking to the actor. And I held on to that and took that with me as I went yeah. on my own way. So you leave Michigan, you're ready to just be an adult and do your thing. Jump headfirst into it. Doing, you're still working at Def Jam? Um, no, I left Def Jam and was producing music videos with the Ducktown guys. They got a deal at a, a label called Koch, which at the time was sort of the home for not the A-list stars, Ja Rule, Jay-Z, DMX, but guys who had a good core following who would sell maybe gold records, you know, half yeah. a million records. So we would produce kind of inexpensive music videos. We did a Bone Thugs video and my mother do the catering. Nice. They love my Wait, artichoke you, pasta salad. Your mother like just cooked? Yeah, like she's not a caterer. She's a flight attendant. She's his mom. She could just... <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, you and your friends would come over to the house. There'd be 15 boys. You and your boys. friends from Bone Thugs. Right, there'd be 15 <laughs> boys, so I could cook. I can whip up food for I a lot of men. Some pasta salad, so, yeah, maybe so a casserole. Like, the, the Lazy Bone loves my artichoke <laughs> salad. I go, well, it's really good. Wait, what What music video? a Let's... giant blunt before, right, right, but so, it's I mean, delicious, Mom. Weed makes for a good chef. Now, this was like chef. post- uh, Crossroads Bone Thugs. So this okay. isn't at the height of their power. Because my very first CD purchase was Bone Thugs and Harmony. And I used to drive around Lake Forest, Illinois, which is known for its heavy hip hop influences, sure. uh, just busting its the first of the month. And um, definitely connected with their welfare checks hitting. The Midwest thing, yeah. Cleveland, <laughs> um, East 1999. That and the Friday it. soundtrack a couple years later, I would just drive around and like really had some crazy street cred. Um, okay, so you are working on music videos, producing stuff, and at what point do you make the shift into entertainment uh, and like movies and stuff? So I was producing segments for a syndicated music show called Hip Hop Nation. It was on at two o'clock in the morning on six stations. Funny what month, age is this now? Twenty, twenty-one. Okay. And I, the plan was to go to NYU. That wasn't in NYU's plan. So. <laughs> So you didn't get in? I didn't get in, yeah. Interesting. Didn't get into NYU. Didn't I applied to transfer to Did uh, you get decent grades at Michigan or you weren't yeah, really focused? You and... could read probably the writing on the wall that I had already had, you know, checked out and right. was not really interested in, in studying there, just right. wanting to be back in New York and working. Right. That's what I like to tell myself. So, <laughs> it's a good uh, story. <laughs> um, I uh, I was producing a show called Hip Hop Nation, and we had a host who was a little unreliable. This is like a late night music television show. You set up interviews with the rapper and all that. And sometimes she wouldn't show up, she wouldn't come late. And my producing partner at the time was like, your dad's on TV, you grew up on a TV set, why don't you jump in here and do these interviews? Right. I never thought about it. Honestly, I always wanted to be the behind the scene guy who managed all these, you know, and I said, you know what, all right, let's give it a shot. And my first interview, we did a set visit for a new show on Comedy Central that had not come out yet. It was called The Chappelle Show. And I had all day, all access pass to the show. No way. And I did like two hours with Dave. And That's that was my amazing. first on-air camera interview. Was with Dave Chappelle. Ever. What a d- 
So, that, <laughs> okay, kids, everyone listening, all you need to do is started. grow up with a really successful dad, <laughs> drop out of school, do some music videos with Bone Thugs, and you're set. That's how you make it to sports. And <laughs> I um, was trying, you know, we were trying to get our music videos played on MTV at the time, and I made a little hosting reel from being on set, being around different artists. And I got it to a uh, a friend who worked at MTV who ran it up the food chain, and they had a movie show called Your Movie Show, and they cast me opposite Suchin Pak, and they sent me to nice. LA, and I, here I am again. Yeah, I grew up around it, but now this is like a job. This mm-hmm. is real. And the first three half hour sit downs were Jack Black, Will Smith, and Angelina Jolie. This is like oh four, wow. and I was, and this is a valuable lesson that people can hopefully take something from. I didn't know. I'm going out there for MTV. It's my first time in California that my parents. I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh, MTV, you want me to ask these questions? Sure. Whatever right. you say. Hey, and it wasn't me. Right. It wasn't my voice. It wasn't my right. words. And it was a valuable lesson for the on-air you know, talent out there that might be listening or people who have aspirations for that. You're yourself out there. So you're going to have people in your ear who are going to want you to say something or do something. And if it's not from your heart, then it's going to come off as inauthentic. And guess what? That movie show didn't get picked up at MTV. Right. I worked there six months and then was back to square one. So definitely taught me a lot of if you're going to go out there and put yourself out there, be yourself. Right. Speak for how you would speak. Dress how you would dress. Don't try to pretend to be somebody you're not because it's not going to work out. Get it for sure. Transparency, authenticity more so than ever. Absolutely. Because people see real celebrities on social media now the way they didn't. And they also know that they're getting advertised to all the time under the guise of content. And it's really an ad. And so they're looking for that and they're aware of when they're being played. And so I always talk about being genuine, being transparent. It's so much easier to tell now than ever before when people aren't. You know, as a talent and who does interviews or has to read stuff or they say, hey, why don't why don't you do it once try our this. way? I'd be like, oh, I would never say that. Yeah. Right, but you just try <laughs> yeah. it our Those way. Those are not and my words. do one for you, and right. then we'll figure it out later. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, do you head back to New York? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I was in New York running around for a little bit, and then um, I pitched NBC an idea for a show called Movies with My Dad, and it would be the two of us reviewing movies. He's in a suit and tie. I'm in a hoodie, and we're arguing over pop culture and movies yeah. and stuff. That kind of morphed into uh, a segment on MSNBC. They had a movie show on Saturdays, national show, and they'd split the screen and put us both on, and That's I'd awesome. be in a track suit. And he, yeah. and so I moved to L.A. I said, I've always wanted to live in L.A. I'm 22, 23 years old at the time. Let's give it a shot. All my buddies from college are from out there. And I had this little MSNBC credit, so I would go 6 in the morning every Friday. I'd drive out to Burbank, do my little hit for a couple hundred bucks, and that was it. And yes. Then that got me a meeting at the E Channel, which I went into, Sarah, kicking and screaming. Really? I'm not the gossip dude. Right. I don't care about these reality stars. I don't watch E. I go in there, and luckily there was a guy named Bob Lifton, who was an executive producer. He'd come from Sports Center, Access Hollywood, big Chicago guy. Nice. Bears, you guys are, you know, yeah. speaking the same language. And Bob just gave me a shot to be myself on a show called The Daily Ten. I worked with Sal Masekela mm-hmm. and Kat Sadler and Debbie Matinopoulos, and that place changed my life. And I worked at E! for six years and got to interview every star on the planet and got to go to Dubai and to Australia and to China and to Israel with Rihanna and just have crazy adventures. And I, like I said, I went into it kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. And again, another valuable lesson of you make opportunities your own. You know, they gave me a segment once a week. I turned that into a six-year job, and now I've 
10 year plus career. Right. So you make those opportunities your own. And yeah, that's, that's sort of where we are in the timeline there. Got on the okay, e channel so now in like 06, maybe. 27, 28. Mm-hmm. You are working at E still and you add on the at the movie show. Yeah, uh, at the movies, the old Cisco and Ebert show was re, you know, casting. And, uh, I, at the time, you know, was really deep in covering film. And, you know, I worked at E, but I used that again, making an opportunity, I like to think for the most of it, of saying, okay, I know I have to go and interview Ben Affleck for Hollywood Land, but I'm going to stay because they're offering Bob Hoskins and I'm a huge fan of Bob Hoskins. And I know that this is never going to air, mm. but I'm doing this for me. Right. And I would get opportunities to be on the jury for AFI in the foreign film category. Nice. And I'd go see German and Hungarian movies at night. And, and it's just kind of rounded out my film profile. And so they gave me an opportunity to do at the movies in Chicago, which I did with Ben Wankowitz uh, every week. We flew out there. I was also doing stuff for Good Morning America at the time. And and uh, the E! Channel had an arrangement with the Hard Rock Hotel in Vegas. So I would be there three Saturdays a month for two years. Doing appearances, sort of? Uh, you know, entertain, uh, welcoming everyone to Vegas, oh, uh, announcing our musical performances yeah. for the evening. Wow, okay. It's kind of like a do-it-all host. Songs. Right. You know, you're inviting friends to come have a drink at the bar. Got it. And so... Sh- what a surprise being serious film critic and nightclub promoter was not necessarily well received by the public. Yeah. So I was going to ask that. <laughs> um, this is the point where uh, things get a little bit uh, tougher for you. Sure. You've, you've not had it easy. You've been working this whole time, but you've bounced from opportunity to opportunity, made the most of them and built upon them. You get that job, which, as you mentioned, it was a Siskel and Ebert gig before it was, you know, this this sort of accepted product that changed because mm-hmm. of the people doing it changed. And there was to the point where people had like a stopbenlions.com oh, yeah, website. Absolutely. No, I got four about... pages in the LA Times on how it was the downfall of American media. Right. So why do you think the reaction was so strong? Was it just that it had been a product that was beloved in its initial iteration and the change was too different? A little backstory that I'll share with you, Sarah. Um, Cisco Nieper never really got along with my dad. They didn't appreciate that there were other critics out there. You know, they were the first. And in the 70s and 80s, there weren't a whole, there wasn't a whole industry of film criticism and conversation. There's only a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And they didn't appreciate that my dad was from New York. They thought he was too close to the film industry and being from the film industry and having the relationships he did. Um, so they were really nasty to him over the years. And my dad, to his credit, always took the high road. And when I got the job, I didn't go and kiss the ring. You know, Cisco had passed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ebert had been really nasty to my father for many years. So when I got the job, in hindsight, I probably should have written him a letter. I probably should have said, hey, Mr. Ebert, it's great to follow in your footsteps and to take this role. I never did any of that. And I don't know if that ever soured him or got him to feel a certain type of way about me, but he wrote some really scathing and nasty reviews of my work. And then I said to myself, I said, what are we doing here? You know, this is a guy who's faced tremendous health challenges. He couldn't speak at the time. Couldn't walk. Um, But as an institution is beloved by so many people. And here I am taking over his show. Um, So I just kind of focused on the work and did it for a year and then found out on the ticker on CNN that my contract wasn't going to be renewed. Well, that sucks. Which is a. Uh, uh, That's very athletes and social media. I really uh, just read that I'm no longer a part right. of the team. Sitting in the program, sitting in the boss's office there at, at, wow. in Chicago, and we're having this conversation. It's on the ticker. So then again, another valuable lesson is learned because the day after I got back from Chicago, when the news had broke that I lost the at the movies job and all these 
bloggers. Very happy. They've so done their job, right? They've done their job. Took you down. I hosted a Q&A at the Directors Guild with Demi Moore for a short film that she had directed as part of a series called Holly Shorts, uh, a short film festival that was just emerging in L.A. at the time. And I'm on stage in front of 500 people talking to Demi Moore about film. And I said to myself, oh, they, they can't. They can't take this away from me. Right. I can get knocked down. I can be embarrassed. I can lose an opportunity. I love doing this and I'm really gonna good at it. going to keep doing it. Yeah. So it's going to change and it's going to morph, but right. keep going. Cause so I, I wonder, it. you know, I'm glad that this came up because I, I've been trying to, I had this amazing woman, Sarah Rob O'Hagan on the pod. She's been the CEO of, of all sorts of major companies. She's now the CEO of Flywheel, but she's worked at Nike, Virgin. Love Flywheel. That's where they put the the score on the board, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I can yeah. get 28,000 points. Yeah, I love yeah. big Flywheel. 28,000 would be aggressive. Whatever it More is. More like yeah. 260. Um, but she um, she is amazing, and she just wrote a book that incorporated stories of failure because she said, we always hear when we talk to successful people all the things that they did right. It's important to talk about the things they did wrong. So this moment was not a failure in the grand sense, it was an opportunity that didn't work out. But when you look back now, years later, are there parts of what people criticize that you say that's right, or that's accurate? Because you were a kid and yeah. you were still learning. Absolutely. Are you able to look back and did that actually, did any of the criticism, even in that moment, get through where you said, okay, that's probably fair and I should work on that? Yeah, absolutely. That's um, hard to do in the moment. It totally is hard to do in the moment. And looking back on it, again, I was 27, 28 years old and being asked to take on this, you know, take the reins for this iconic franchise. And yeah, one thing I should have done is I should have reached out to Eber, mm -hmm. regardless of how nasty and mean he was to my father. And years later, his wife, Chaz, to her credit, came up to me at a festival and said, Roger always felt so bad about the way he treated you. And, mm -hmm. and I've made peace with her. And that's cool, and 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 I'm happy for that. Um, but in terms of yeah, the actual job, sure, you know, there 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 are definitely things you can work on as a host. And but did I see every film? Of course. Did I go and cover all the festivals? Of course. Am I you know just giving my opinion about the movie? And is that different from somebody else's opinion of the movie? Yeah. Sure, very but subjective. That's what, which is that's why what it's we're hard doing to be so like, angry. Let's yeah. have a conversation about it as right. opposed to you're an idiot. You're so stupid. You know, Roger loved a movie called Synecdoche, New York which I implore you, go and watch the movie and then tell me what it's about. You have no idea. <laughs> the, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, he called it the movie of the decade. I had it as one of the worst movies of the year. Right. So we just had very different, different opinions. Yeah. And yeah. That, that viewership is much older. And right. so for them to have a 27-year-old, they're like, what do you know? So right. I, again, I knew my own voice. I, I knew in my heart that I had a love for covering film and for talking about film and interviewing filmmakers. So I was going to keep doing it. But I think it is important to learn from failures. And I think anyone, especially in this sports media or Hollywood business, who thinks they can put themselves out there for a certain amount of time and not, not get knocked down, it's insane. I mean, look at, I mean, look, if you're real serious, whether it's Robert Downey Jr. and you're all the way down and right. rock bottom. Right. And now you're the face of Disney and Iron Man. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hollywood's about reinvention. Hollywood's about getting knocked down. Hollywood's about having a flop opening weekend and right. how do you bounce back? Well, and, and if you're big enough that people care enough to get you down, you've already achieved some level of success. Sure. And so if, if people don't even notice that you're gone, maybe you were never doing anything that big in the first place. All right, so you, you go from there to what's next? I worked at the E-Channel for a long time and then got an opportunity to join Extra, which is, you know, NBC's mm -hmm. and National, the whole thing. Um, did that for a little bit and realized there was nothing that I was doing at Extra that I hadn't already done at E. Right. And when you do it all for the first time, it's fun. And then you do it again, and it's fun, but he's trying to recapture the magic. Right. It's not a good thing to do. I was driving to work the day that Steve Nash got traded to the Lakers. 
And the big conversation on ESPN LA was now that Nash is traded and Dwight Howard's on his way, how many titles? Is this a <laughs> dynasty? Is it one and done? Are we going to get our, our permit on Figueroa now right. for the parade? Right. I called in the number. 877-710-ESPN. We're taking your calls. Now let's go to Ben in uh, Beverly Hills. Ben, yeah. you're on with John and uh, John Ireland and Steve Mason. Uh, yeah, the man's 38 years old with a bad back and scored 12 <laughs> points a game next, uh, last year. You guys are all insane. Yeah. And the program director at ESPN LA heard my call. And he said, who's that guy? And they knew me from my days of the E! Channel. I'd friendly with John from right. seeing him at Laker games. He put us in touch. Mike said, Thompson, you come the program to director, yeah. said, hey, listen, you've been in media for a long time. Don't do a demo and send it to me that you're going to polish and perfect. Tomorrow night, what are you doing from 7 till 9? You want to go to two hours of Sports Talk Radio by yourself? By yourself? All right. Let's do it. Sure. Why not? By yourself. End of August? Let's do That's it. That's aggressive. I just did my first solo two-hour shows like a couple months ago, and I've been doing radio since 2010. And you probably knocked out of the park. You were I awesome. did. I've totally crushed it, but that's not the totally point. That's very scary it. that they would have you do that when that's not even your industry. I know you're a huge fan, but sure. just ins and outs, logistically, that's the tough part. So I was like, all right, everybody knows me on Twitter from NBA stuff at the time. I'm a huge basketball fan. It's the end of August. I'm going to do 40 minutes out of the top <laughs> on should the Angels fire Sosha. Oh, boy. I'm going to go deep dive on the Angel. At the time, we were the station for the Angels. I'm going to show them I know all this stuff. Open up the phones 40 minutes into it. First call. This is Greg and Alhambra. Um, what are the Lakers going to do with Pau Gasol? Right. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, again, a valuable lesson learned. You can always talk about the Lakers on Sports oh, Talk Radio absolutely. in Los in Angeles. In L.A., for sure. You can always put your window Lakers flag right before the postseason and pretend like you've been a fan all year. Exactly. I'm not saying yeah, that from we're all the my personal experience from having lived there for six years. A thousand percent. That's a yeah. great call, sir. We're Literally, postseason comes and everyone's like, oh, I, I, I love the Lakers. Like, Here, here's right. something funny, too, about Laker fans when they call in now. They have to give you their resume. Oh, yeah. My mom had season tickets at the forum. <laughs> okay, well, what's your point right, about Lonzo make Ball? It, make, it, right. make a point. Um, okay, so... so the, that began my I, transition kind of more like, to sports. You, uh, like Ramona Shelburne and like some other recent guests, you're going to need a two-parter because like there's just too much. And this was like fascinating, fascinating stuff. But we are just arriving at ESPN, and I have a couple more questions for this iteration. Then we're going to have to do this again sometime soon because I have so much more to ask. But So you start working at ESPN Radio... After that, I actually first met you at uh, ESPN Radio in New York. Yes. We were like both working in booths next to each other doing shows from there because we were there for other things. And I recognize you actually from E! Because when I lived in LA, I tried to be on E! And I always tell the story of how like I showed up and I I think I'm going to be this E! personality. And then I realized, and this is not what it is because I know that you did it. But to me, I always summed it up with like, I'm not the person who can be like, you'll never guess what Britney was wearing. Because like, I don't give a and I don't talk like that. And the answer is nothing. The answer is uh, yeah, like this. No right. one cares. Um, but, but that's when I transitioned into sports. Was this realization of who I really am and my natural finding your voice ability is not that. Yes. Um. But okay, so you're working at ESPN Radio, and then I'm interested in the in the Players Tribune stuff because you're a New York guy, Yankee fan. No, not a Yankee fan. Grew up in a household. My father is an iconic. Boston Red Sox fan. I mean, he, is, he got a shout out on Sports Center when they won the World Series in 04. Really? The Red Sox so Nation, Je- this night's for you. Jeffrey Lyons, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, wow. congrats. He, uh, we make a pilgrimage to Mecca every year to Fenway. We, uh, his best friend is Joe Castiglione, the Red Sox radio announcer. So would you say Yankee hater? No, because I grew up rooting for food and shelter. So I couldn't, I couldn't have my father like, this is an awful situation. Right, to be that's. In. 
Um, I liked the Bash Brothers when I was a kid and the A's. I liked Frank Thomas. And then the Red Sox thing, Sarah, I'm telling you, it's so deep in our family. We have a home in Long Island because in the 80s he could get Red Sox games on the radio there. So he's really upset. <laughs> wow. So that was always his thing. So as soon as I got to L.A., like fresh off the plane, Dodgers, let's go. Shout really? Ravine. Okay, so you're Dodgers and Red Dodgers. Sox? Well, again, you know, this. I don't think I'll ever be able to watch a Red Sox game without thinking of my father, thinking of my childhood, thinking of going to Fenway. I got hit in the stomach by a Tom Brunansky line drive when I was 10 years old. What? It was during early hitting, which is before batting practice, right. before they open it up to the public. My dad was really good friends with Joe Morgan, not the Cincinnati Reds one, but Morgan's magic of the 88 summer when he was the Red Sox manager. Okay. So we're there early, three in the afternoon. I get drilled in the oh. stomach by Tom Brunansky. The stitches from the ball. Everyone stopped working out. Jeff Reardon, Dennis Lamp, and Roger Clemens jumped the fence. They got the paramedic. My father kept me at the game. We didn't go to a doctor. We didn't go to a hospital. <laughs> the game went 15 innings to 1.30 in the morning. They were throwing me ice packs in between innings. I was sitting by the dugout. Th- the Red Sox are bringing me buckets of ice to ice my stomach. I'm 10 years old. T- Jack Clark hits his third home run of the game, walk off in the 15th inning. My mother found out the next day what happened, Ooh. and it's the only time in my life my parents truly had a fight. Like a fight like fight. Like a fight. You, you made your kids sit there miserable, hurting Literally, for 15 in turn, in, yeah. matter? Plus extra hours before the game even started. Ten years later, I'm in a bar in New York. I see Roger Clemens. I've had a few too many, and I'm like, I got hit by the Brunansky <laughs> foul ball. It's like, oh, my God, Jeffrey, son, let me see your stomach. That's crazy. Crazy. So that's my dad's Red Sox fanaticism. Okay, so... Is your dad still with us? He is, yes. Okay. And he's still seeing movies. And, and you work for grinding. Derek Jeter. <laughs> You'll love this. How is this? <laughs> so I got the gig. Uh, the team from the Players' Tribune reached out to me in the end of, I guess it's 2014 then, and said they were launching this thing, and you know Derek's involved in what it was, and they had a vision of kind of a voice of the fan or a non-athlete being able to drive conversation so they signed me up, and the company really launched in February of All-Star Weekend when it was in New York, and we did a Sirius XM radio show from the launch, and I'm sitting there interviewing Derek, who is now my boss. My father comes up to the interview, uh, shows Derek his Red Sox hat, his watch, his Blackberry that has a sticker of the Red Sox. Meanwhile, Derek has no idea with my father. Yeah. He's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Right. And now it's become this running joke. My, my dad comes to the office, Red Sox ties. Oh, he's, where's course. Derek? I'm like, he doesn't work here. He's in Tampa. <laughs> yeah. like, he's yeah. in Miami. He what bought the Marlins. Right. He's, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so that has definitely been really funny to see him kind of react to it and uh, as I've been a part of it. That is amazing. <laughs> I love the twist. That Heckling end up, my boss. Right, but you know what? I also feel like it teaches you that very quick lesson of professionalism in sports wherein you realize that, you know, if you were born somewhere else, you probably rooted root for them. And if you move somewhere, maybe you get into that. And if you, you know, I, like people get really mad at me now for not making, you know, Packers toilet seat jokes. And I'm like, actually, I think Aaron Rodgers might be my favorite player. How about this? How about <laughs> it's this? It's a problem. <laughs> root for them. Root for them in the game of life. Yeah. And then root and then against, against them, them in when the they game. play your team. That's totally right. cool. And that's something that it's taken me a while to really get to as a sports fan as well, because part of my thing was I just love to heckle. Like I right. love to go to games. I do and like heckling, but it's like a, it's a very fine art in doing it in a way that isn't offensive or mean or, or annoying. I got kicked out of Dodger Stadium once, but that's a story for oh, another time. Yes, tell me. No, a story for another time. It it was not that salacious. Hey. I, I yelled penis, which is the anatomically correct word for it, and some old lady didn't like it, and it was not my fault. And everyone was entertained by me, including all the Dodgers fans, and it was not just them that were mad. So anyway, before you go you have to do the one thing that everybody has to do. 
the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects it. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Playing the piano. I wish I could go into any hotel lobby bar in the world and just hold court. That would be magical. Number two, Desert Island album. You can only have one. Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I thought that was going to be the hardest question for you. Easy. But instead, it's, it's a beautiful album. It is a beautiful album. Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Present company excluded? Yes. Charles Barkley. Dream bigger. Charles Barkley. <laughs> oh, you dreamt bigger, yeah. <laughs> Charles Barkley. Uh, um, and to Charles Barkley's credit, now that I work down at, at, at Turner on, on Thursdays, I see him and he'll bring, there'll be people in the office. Hey, everybody. Nice to meet you. I'm yeah. Charles Barkley. And yeah. I'm like, oh, wow. You don't he's have to announce really nice. who you are. Yeah, he's really nice. At this nice. past ESPYs, he came up to me. No, not this one. The one before. And he was like, hey, Sarah, congrats on the wedding. And I'm like, I- I'm sorry. You know my name and then I got married? Okay. So I'd like That's to be here awesome. for a day just to see what that feels like, just to just, walk around yeah. and have everyone want to buy you a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Going into surgery for the third year in a row in high school. I had a staph infection in my the bone of my knee in ninth grade, a staph infection in the bone of my knee in 10th grade, and junior year of high school, they told me they had put screws in my leg, and I was just exhausted. I was like, again? Ugh. Ugh, Why do you keep getting that, staph infections? That hurt. That one was a lot. That like, that's like a locker room thing, usually. Locker room talk. <laughs> no locker room talk No here. locker room talk. <laughs> Number five, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, that's a great question. I would, um, say that my biggest failure is not positioning myself right now to be more politically outspoken. I think I have been, I've done work with rock the vote. That's a real issue. That's a passion of mine is getting young people registered to vote. Um, I'm working on a partnership with rock the vote in the NBA right now to get the NBA to get behind voting in a big way. But in this current climate right now, I would like for my part of my public and 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 just my career to be dedicated towards, you know, having my voice heard a little a little bit louder in terms of some issues that we're dealing with right now. You think you're going to try? I, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. And I think now is the time where we all can try. Now we can educate ourselves so that when we do go out and put ourselves out there a little bit more, right. we're saying something of importance and it coming yeah. from a place of knowledge and, and expertise. For sure. Number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Back to the first question of the podcast, my curiosity. Yeah. You ask questions if you try things. I remember when I was at E and doing one segment a week, and I would say, I know I'm only here for one day a week, but can I sit in the marketing meetings? Because I'm really interested in that. So, And they said yes to their credit. So wow. I'm, here I am one day a week sitting in marketing meetings and, and learning. And, and so if you can ask questions and be curious, I think that'll take you a long way. I would say also in a lot of different spaces for you is just asking askers are getters, right? You ask to stick around, you ask to help, you ask to put on the show, you ask to do, and to not be scared to be told no and, and keep asking. Can I sit in the control room once my hit's done? I right. want to see yeah. how you guys Watch direct. the show. Yeah, yeah exactly. I do that all the time. Yeah. There'd be days at E, I wouldn't even be on, and I'd come in and just sit in the control room because I want to see what that experience is like. It's maybe really a smart. way better talent really smart. on air. Yeah. Thanks. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, besides being a little bit more outspoken on some of the stuff going on in mm-hmm. the world right now. doesn't have to be work-related. Uh, just be, my yoga know. schedule should be a little bit really? little, little tighter. Mm. Yeah, it kind of comes and, comes and goes. Are you more of a hot yoga? Are you more of a power yoga? Uh, I like a, vin- a good vinyasa, good vinyasa flow. flow. Yeah, I don't okay. need the Bikram heat. I don't need all that. But, uh, but yeah, I need to be a little more consistent with my mm. practice. Have you done much power yoga? I have. 
I yeah. love power yoga. I love power yoga. Um, I, I live in L.A., Sarah. You know what I mean? Oh, that's I, right. You know? I once... Um, My wife uh, teaches meditation. I was looking through Ryan Howard's SB's gift bag, and I was looking at all the stuff in there, and I was like, do you do yoga? He's like, no. I'm like, are you going to use this? He's like, you can have it, whatever it is. And it was a year of free yoga yes. when I was poor, and I was like, it was me and the... Brentwood Housewives at like 10.30 a.m. And I went all the time. It was like $4,000 worth of yoga. And it was just like my my deal. And the only other people going, I had a weird schedule at Fox Sports at the time. The only other people were going with these like yeah. polished, rich-ass housewives. And I was like, man. Spain, the Hollywood years is uh, a yes. series I would it like to go down the rabbit 30, hole yeah. on. Yes. What if I told you? <laughs> right. Exactly. A girl from Chicago. Exactly. Oh, I would love to hear um, about that. Finally, number eight. What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, passionate, uh, kind, thoughtful. Those are good. Kind and thoughtful are kind of similar. No, I think thoughtful. They're different, but I mean, in the grand pantheon of things and ideas that you could be, those are very similar. They're very connected, but there is a difference, I think. I I agree. Thoughtful is more premeditated. Kind can be reactive or premeditated. And Thoughtful is sort of the counterbalance to impulsive, right? You're actually taking oh, okay. some time that to kind be of genuine and be thoughtful mm. and to really take what you're being mindful mm, uh, into good. consideration. And kind is just kind of your overall outlook and demeanor, I think. Yes, good to people. Well, you're going to come back because we, awesome. we, we haven't gotten to the ESPN years and yeah. I've, we're already done. So. This, this feels awesome, Sarah. This, this is like this, really cathartic. This feels awesome to me and too I, like, because I'm releasing a lot. Like the next time I can't think of who I want to have on, I'll be like, oh, I still need to do part two of Ramona. I need to do part two of Ben. It's going to be good. Like I've done the podcast long enough that I can start going back to the well. I love And it. be like, all right, here's friend what we need to get to. Friend, friend of the show? Take a friend of the show status? Friend nice. of the show. Good. Also, one of the few I've done in person, so you win for that. I listen when you when you put it put out the bat signal. I jumped on the <laughs> opportunity, and I again say it again. You do an awesome job here. Thank You're you. really fun to listen to. I'm going to screenings or Laker games in LA. I listen to you on the radio. Thank you. And and especially on social media, the way you just shine a light on these <laughs> clowns who exist. Do my best. And who, uh, permeate and uh, our culture and our conversation. Abiding entirely by ESPN Slow- policy whilst doing so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> that policy. Can we talk about that on this yeah. episode? Nope. Next episode. Uh, okay. we're, and we're all out of time. Hey, That's too bad, man. And we gotta go. Porzingis forever. Thanks yeah. for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> That's what she said. This week's That's What She Read is not a really a long piece, but it's something that just made me smile so big. Uh, if you haven't heard, Cards Against Humanity does these interesting holiday uh kind of 12 gifts of Christmas. You pay 15 bucks and you get a couple different envelopes and letters that tell you different things. Um, The first week they invested in a plot of land on the Mexican border that might make things difficult if one wanted to say build a wall there. Uh, But every week it's something different. And and day three of the 12 uh, gifts or days of Christmas for this year's Cards Against Humanity is called Cards Against Humanity Redistributes Your Wealth. So this is just a little bit I'll read from the letter that they sent all of the people who subscribe to this $15, uh, 12 gifts of Christmas thing. In order for Cards Against Humanity to truly save America, we realized we would have to tackle the biggest issue in the world, wealth inequality. Here are some crazy facts. Today, eight men own the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of humanity, almost 4 billion people. Most Americans can't come up with $400 in an emergency and one in five American households have zero or negative wealth. That is truly effed. But none of us feel like we can do anything about it. Every idea has to start somewhere. Our lawyers advise us against our first choice, a campaign to eat all the rich people and live in their houses. So we settle for something more achievable. 
Last month, 150,000 people signed up for Cards Against Humanity Saves America. Today, we're redistributing their money. When they signed up, subscribers filled out a survey with a mix of demographic questions and red herrings. We ranked everyone based on their survey responses and geographical census data to figure out who most needed money. Most of our subscribers, about 140,000 people, got nothing today. They could have it worse. The next 10,000 subscribers received a full $15 refund of their Cards Against Humanity Saves America purchase. Finally, the poorest 100 people received a check for $1,000 paid for by everyone else. And then they go on to have a bunch of photos and stories from some of the recipients of the $1,000 checks saying what they would do with the money and telling a little about themselves. And it's really, really heartwarming to see the various stories of the people who responded, um, what it means for them paying off bills or being able to buy Christmas presents for their family that they didn't think that they would. And it's just a small thing. It's just 100 people. But the idea of it is wonderful. And I had friends on my Facebook posting, just got a letter from Cards Against Humanity saying, you know, I wasn't getting a refund and I couldn't be happier about that money going to people who need it. So um, I thought it was in the in the in the you know in the in the Christmas spirit and and giving to those in need. So props to Cards Against Humanity, you've done it again. Thanks to you guys as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.